Thank you for joining us this morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I have had two weeks of a break, um, which is great. Uh, We have more than capable people to help fill the gap when I am not in, but it is nice to be back. So um, we've been in this sermon series of living a life of spiritual renewal, and uh, we've been talking about prayer for two weeks, and we'll be talking about prayer for a, a number of weeks coming up. We're having a break in Easter, uh, coming up with the Easter season to, to look at the gospel or look at the resurrection, look at Jesus' death, look at the Last Supper, those, that kind of final week in Jesus' life. And so after that pause, we're going to return back to prayer later in April. Um, if you're in this room this morning and you're, you are new uh, in your you know, relationship with Jesus or your interest in following Jesus, if you're very young in that or you've been following Jesus for longer than I've been alive, uh, prayer is one of those topics that all of us engages in. Like even, you know, uh, the, the most skeptic, you know, in a dire situation with nowhere to turn, prayer often is what happens, right? It's a very natural impulse. So all of us in this room, we, we have something to learn of prayer, and I want to, this morning, um, uh, be vulnerable with you a little bit. Um, you know, I kind of was born and raised in a church pew, if you want to say that, you know, from a little kid. I've been in church. Um, I've been praying, I guess you can say, most of my life. I wish I could say I'm some kind of expert because as of recent, I just really wondered, do I really like know prayer? Like I pray often, but do I really know? Like you ever met, sit down with somebody who knows prayer and you're like, oh, I don't know anything about prayer. Like look at this man, look at this woman and how they're engaging with God when they speak with him. There's a level of intimacy that I just don't have. What is that? I don't know if you've been in that kind of situation before, but prayer is one of those things that until the day that we leave this earth or until Christ returns, there is more of God to explore and it is through the avenue of prayer that is available to us to find it. And so this morning, we're gonna be talking about the possibilities of a praying church. Um, I myself, I, I feel like I'm on a, I am entering a personal journey to learn how to pray. Like I'm pretending like I don't know anything and just going from scratch and saying, Lord, just teach me all over again how to pray. And I've been really challenged with this because if you read the Bible, um, there's some stories in there, some crazy stories of people praying and some crazy things happening. And I've read this story so many times And so often just kind of gloss over like, well, that's cool. On to the next chapter. When I haven't stopped and said, wait, is that that possible in prayer? Like it's what I just read in the book of Acts, which is a story of the early church and when it was started. And almost every chapter, the church is praying and almost every chapter there's crazy things happening. And the gospel is going forth in amazing ways and thousands of people are becoming Christians and there's people getting healed and there's things like demons leaving people's bodies and there's amazing things happening and it's in the Bible and I wonder like do we do we really believe that prayer cannot just transform us but and everywhere in the book of Acts where the early church was found and there where they're praying the community around them felt the impact 
the community around them felt the impact of people being transformed in Jesus as they learned to pray and God showed up and did things and the witness of the gospel went forth in incredible ways. And so my question this morning as we work through some of these things are, do we really embrace the possibilities of prayer? What would it look like for a church to embrace the possibilities of prayer? Um, I think I want to talk about this kind of our sermons divided in half this morning. The first half is going to be some teaching. The last half, a lot of exhorting. All right. So I want to spend a few minutes kind of in teaching mode. If you can put on your classroom hat just for a minute, I won't spend a lot of time here, but I do think we need to walk through a few things because I think what might keep us from embracing the possibility of prayer is what I like to call, um, uh, uh, we, we, we tend to, um, uh, over-theologize ourselves. Theology is a study of God. I mean, a theo-god of God, you know, the study of God is theology. And in the West, we are super rational people. Like if it doesn't, if one plus one doesn't equal two, then it doesn't make any sense to me, right? That's where we are in the West, all right? Most of our brothers and sisters in the East and other parts of the world, they're, they're not quite there, but man, in America, if it's, if it's not really rational and just logical, it doesn't really fit and it's probably stupid and doesn't matter, so we're pushing it off. And I think that this problem that we have in the West has, has made us put God in these boxes when it comes to prayer, that we expect him as like, we're trying to find the right formula Right? We, we, we try to find the right formula to just to pray because one plus one equals two. So, okay, where's the rational way to pray to get this to happen or, or that? So there's, there's two problems, I think, of, of how we do this that can keep us from praying. We're going to look at Acts chapter 12 at the end of our time today, um, with any exhorting time. But the first problem, I think, when we, when we try to just rationalize this thing called prayer um, is this, is we, we want to remove the mystery of God. No matter what, he, there's a word I learned this week. Um, I, I wasn't actually, I've heard it before, but it really, you know, it's an interesting word. It's called antinomy. Can you guys say antinomy? This Georgia boy has a low vocabulary, all right? So when I learn new words, I'm like, well, that's cool. So antinomy, all right. That word refers to beliefs or statements that makes sense when apart, but when placed together, don't make sense. Okay, for example, it's like saying there is no absolute truth. Well, do you mean that absolutely? Because if you do, then you just stated an absolute truth that there is no absolute truth. Right? So that statement makes sense until you combine it with another and you realize that doesn't make any sense. That's an example of antimony. God is full of antimony, if you will. Meaning, there is so much we believe about him that is absolutely true, but when we put those things together in our finite minds, suddenly seem contradictory. Because we're Westerners looking for that one plus one equals two formula for everything, I think for far too long we've resisted the mysteries of God, especially in the realms of prayer. I'm going to go through two examples of how we can do this. Number one. The first way we can do this is, is verses like this are littered all out throughout the Bible. Psalm 139, verse 4, David says this, Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. This refers to the sovereignty of God. Before I even speak, he knows what you're going to say. Okay. Within our Western minds, then why say it? 
Then what is prayer? I know what you're going to pray, but you can just say it anyway. Right? And so we can read that, and we can say something like this when we try to pray. It's like, God is completely sovereign. He knows everything. He knows every word I'm about to say. That's definitely true. It's all over the Bible. So we can maybe be tempted to pray, Lord, I'm about to pray, but I know that you know when I'm about to pray because you know all things. So, okay, so your will be done in this situation, but I know that your will will be done because there's another verse, Job 42, verse 2, that says no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So I don't even need to pray that your will be done because it will be done. So I, I guess I'm just acknowledging in prayer that what you're already about to do is going to happen, so just do it, amen. Now find somewhere in the Bible where you see a prayer like that. It's not there. It's not there. Now hear me out. Psalm 139 verse 4, Job 42 verse 2, they are true. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. His will will be accomplished. And before I even speak a word, he knows what those words are about to be. But read Psalm 85. When you read the psalmist pleading, he says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us salvation. Somebody's wrestling with God in Psalm 85. And they're asking him for a changed scenario. God, change your will, because this is heavy in this season. Will you please stay your hand? They are asking for a different circumstance from God. And they're wrestling with him in prayer. And that's way more common in the Bible. So we embrace the full sovereignty of God, because the Bible says it's true, absolutely. But we're still invited to pray in such a way that we anticipate and are asking God to actually change circumstances and changes that would not have come unless we did pray. And in faith, we're asking that God may bring those things about. Here's just an example. Matthew 21, verse 18, from the Gospels that Jesus was in his ministry. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, Jesus became hungry. The God-man became hungry because he also was a man. He was hungry. And seeing the fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree just wither at once? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree. But if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. There's a mystery wrapped up here. There's a mystery. And I got to tell you, for time for a different day, I had a dark, dark season in trying to understand it, right? How does God sovereign and how do things happen? You know, and how does prayer work that I can actually change? It genuinely does bring about change. It brings about newness. and brings about the things that we're praying for. Like, how do those things work out? And I learned to let God be mysterious. 
to get whatever box I was trying to, one plus one equals two. It doesn't make any sense. And God's saying, of course it doesn't make sense. Am I a man? It's to be fully understood, right? Listen to this. If God is supreme, if he is all-knowing, if he is all-powerful, if God who can simply say words like, let there be light and light appears, if God can raise a dead man from the grave, if he is not a human and not finite like us, but is the infinite I am, when asked of his name, who are you? He said, I am because I have always been, I am now, and I always will be. There's joy in the mystery of who God is. He has revealed enough to us for life and godliness. And that's my, this is our authority and we obey. But when it comes to things that don't make sense in our mind, we have to let go and say, you're mysterious, God, but there's a wonder in your mystery. There's a glory in your mystery that I do not understand. I rejoice in your absolute sovereignty. And I rejoice when I pray and I see you respond because you're a gracious God. I rejoice in those things. The best thing I can say is like, you have to consider God is, is like the sea, right? I spent 10 years living on the Jersey Shore and we were just like a mile from the beach. Some of the most amazing times of prayers, you know, waking up super early, watching the sunrise was like, you know, just a two minute drive down the, down the street. And uh, when you look at the ocean, it's just that to grasp just the size of it, how much water's in it, your mind, it, it breaks, right? And, and we actually have explored, or we know more about the moon's surface than we do about our own ocean floor, right? I mean, there's so much unexplored space here on our own world, but we have seen a lot of it, right? And I think that's kind of like how it is with God. You know, he is, he is like the seeing that we can explore him and came enjoy him, but there's still so much more we don't know about him, and probably never will because our brains are finite. We are creatures and he is a creator. So he's told us everything we need to know in this book, but embrace the things that we cannot understand in faith. And that is actually really reasonable. Does that make sense? That's a very reasonable thing to say. Of course God doesn't make full sense. But don't let it hinder your prayers. Don't let it hinder your, your, your asking him for big things because you don't understand. Because the Bible says, and it calls us to pray and to pray big and to ask our God to do big things for his glory and for the witness of the gospel. You guys with me this morning? You asleep? You awake? You hear me? Awesome. So I'm encouraging you. We're going to end our time praying. I hope today, by the time we're done, you're going to be able to get your prayer shovel, right? Grab your Bible open in your lap or, you know, uh, go for a long walk and, and, and just learn to enjoy him and learn to explore him, right? So anyway, th- that, that's the first error is he's so sovereign, so why pray, okay? So the other error is a more interesting one. It's kind of the opposite extreme. It's a different box that we kind of want to shove God into. And this is this, we pray as if God has fully given us over the reins, and that we're the ones in sole authority, and we can kind of almost God is our servant, that we can kind of tell him what to do. Um, if you've been walking with Jesus for some time, maybe you've been, uh, you, you've seen this teaching like this that might be out there. Um, there. There's some truth to that, of course, that we have authority in Jesus's name. It's throughout the New Testament, Luke 9.1, Jesus gives authority to his disciples to actually go and, and heal people, cast out demons, preach the good news with power. And he, he says, this is my authority I'm giving to you. That's real 
Like that's a real thing. That's why um, oftentimes if you're, you know, sitting in a sermon or you're talking to somebody about Jesus and, and you just sense like there's, they're, they're telling me about Jesus, but it's not just their words. There's a power here that I don't understand. I'm feeling something different as I'm in this room or in this prayer meeting. Like there's, there's power here. That's real, friends. There's an authority given to us as Christians to be able to, to live and to operate and to minister in that power. But the error lies when we treat God in our prayers like a servant, expecting him always to do the things we ask, always to deliver, always to heal, always to cast out demons. And if he doesn't, then your faith is too small. That's your fault. So just get your faith in order and then you'll, all your prayers will be answered, right? There's some of that that can be around. But God's back in the box in that approach. Because there's verses like Ecclesiastes chapter three. We looked at that a few weeks back. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's seasons that God brings about in his divine purposes that we have to embrace because there's also an Ecclesiastes that says everything is beautiful in its time because it's God's time. And sometimes we have to embrace that. There's times that, you know, Paul left uh, one of his friends, Trophimus, sick at Miletus, in a city of Miletus. Um, he left him there sick, 2 Timothy 4, verse 20. This is the same Paul who healed people in the book of Acts, everywhere. We left his buddy sick. Why would you do that, Paul? I thought you had power to heal. It's not always that simple. There's complexity, there's mystery attached to things, right? And so we have to once again embrace ministry. In this kind of view, there's little room for the training grounds of hardship, of difficulty, of challenge, of what happens when sickness comes and you're in that fire, that trial that God's people, both in Old and New Testaments, experienced, and all the while experienced more of God because of the difficulty because it empties you out and you realize I have no one to turn to except God himself. And he does use those things often for his purposes. There's a little room in that realm of thinking for things like lament, the ancient prayer form that, that mourns on behalf of you know, your people, your family, when there's hardship, your church towards God. And lament exists because there's hope that God can change, but still in the midst of a very hard and difficult season, you lament that we live in the broken world, all the while saying, God, where are you? Please come and reverse this. But we, we lament this broken world and we, we mourn in this. Lord Jesus, return and renew all things. There's mystery in that conversation, but let it be there when it comes. Embrace it, but don't let it hinder your prayers, Right? You don't let it hinder your prayers. Well, I'm sick, so I don't know, whatever. This is God's will. No, because James 5 says you should be up. If you're sick, you should come up and say, uh, elders of the church, can you pray for me? Because James chapter 5 says come up if you are sick and need prayer. Because when you ask, God can respond. And so we pray for his healing. And so be in obedience. Never let the mysteries of God keep you from obedience, especially in the realm of prayer. Because at that point, you once again drew your little box, your little theology box, and you shove God in there, and now you have to ignore portions of Scripture to make that box work. And that's not how this is. This is not how the authority of Scripture works. We obey all of it, even if things seem contradictory in our minds. 
You guys tracking with me? All right. That's the teaching part. You can take off your classroom hat now. We're done with that. On to the exhorting part in Acts chapter 12. Because I think once we realize and we, and we, we practice getting God out of our box, our prayers, I believe, become free. They become more free to actually mirror. I, I, you know, writing this sermon, I wrote like three sermons. So there's like many more sermons coming up. There's things I wish I could say this morning, but I don't want to keep you for an hour and a half because there's, there's, there's so much to talk about with prayer. It's crazy. So anyway, after Easter, there's a lot more coming. But I think if we just get God out of the box and look to Scripture and say, how do people pray in Scripture? I want to pray like that, even if it seems crazy. And let's, let's walk through this, okay? What does a church look like that is free in their prayers? That without fear starts praying for insanely big things in light of the witness of the gospel. Without fear, without any box to say we can't pray these prayers. What does that look like? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 12 at a church that did pray a big prayer and see how God responded. So this is Acts chapter 12. If you want to turn to that in your Bibles. I don't have a red one, so I couldn't tell you. I'll tell you what page it is as I'm talking here. This is a story of um, Peter uh, who was just arrested all right, for preaching the gospel. And um, Acts chapter 12 in the Red Pew Bibles will be found on page 1090 in there. So page 1090, if you have a hard time finding it. Um, Peter was one of the apostles of Jesus. He was kind of his right-hand guy, the inner three. And Jesus had already ascended to heaven at this point. He was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost to empower these Christians to go and to be witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Peter's in jail, and we're about to see he's in jail for preaching. Um, the church had been scattered at this point due to persecution because people don't want them talking in the name of Jesus, but the mission of God continues. So let's look at this situation. Verse 1, chapter 12. This is a word of the Lord. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, who was another apostle, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Pretty heavily guarded. That's because earlier in the book of Acts, some of these guys were arrested and the Lord broke him out of jail, so they're like little extra security measures today because we know what happened last time. So he's in jail, four squads, four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. There's immediate mystery at the very beginning. James was killed. I'll go ahead and spoil it for you. Peter's going to be released from prison. But why was James killed? And why does Peter get his life back? Luke doesn't go into that. He doesn't tell us anything because there's mystery wrapped up in God's purposes. You guys understand that? Moving along. He's in jail. They know James was just killed. And they know that um, you have uh, all these guards. This is a high security prison. And this is 
pretty, looking pretty bad for Peter. Like, this is not a good situation to be in. It's, this is a Roman authorities are experts of this stuff. They're experts at executions and arresting people. Like, they, this is how, you know, they actually have power as they do it by fear. And they're experts of this. So, you know, Peter's in trouble. Doesn't keep the church from praying, though. It doesn't keep the church from gathering in prayer, right? Um, in verse five there, it says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying. Not just praying, earnestly praying for him, all right? Now, that's an unlikely prayer, right? Lord, do something, right? We're gonna see the interesting components of that church. We'll get to them in a minute. Let's we'll keep going here as they're praying. So the church is praying, all right? Verse six, the night before Herod was to bring Peter the trial, uh, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. All right, there's two soldiers, there's Peter. Peter's going nowhere, right? And sentries stood guard at the entrance, but suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Now, before I even read this, don't just read this, but like, oh, this is a cute story. This is, this really happened, friends, all right? Let's read this. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains falls off, fell off his wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Even Peter kind of doubted at this point. This ain't real, I'm sleeping. This is crazy. This is a fun dream, you know, if only, right? That's kind of what he's thinking at this point. They passed the first and second guards. They just walked past them. They came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. So I want you to like imagine you're watching a movie and the screen like splits, all right? Because you have this church over here on the left side of your screen and they're, they're praying earnestly, Jesus, like do something, Lord, get Peter out of prison. Other side of the screen, you see Peter like sleeping and you see like, you know, the, 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 the um, you know, intense music drums up like, you know, and it's stressful and the angel shows up and kicks Peter, gets up and there's their praying like this impossible situation is happening. Peter just starts walking by the soldiers. You're thinking they're going to get him. This is crazy. What's actually happening? But they're showing you that there's their praying something crazy is happening. The music's like, you know, drumming up and suddenly he's outside. He walks past that one little block, you know, and the angel disappears and music stops and the cuts over to Peter by himself on the screen. He's like, that really just happened. That really just happened. Like, I'm, I'm not in jail anymore. And I just like walked by these guards and the gates just opened. Now, you're good Westerners. You're thinking, well, this is great, but that didn't really happen, right? I mean, come on. Friends, it did really happen. And there's Peter, okay? So what does Peter want to do now? Um, he, 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 he knows people are praying for him and apparently he knows there's a house church and a woman, um, a woman named Mary has this house church and so he's like I want to go to this house church and tell them I'm here like I'm free so he goes verse 12 when this had dawned on him <laughs> it's kind of funny like I really am free oh like it's kind of funny right this had dawned on him he went to the house of Mary the mother of John also called Mark where many people had gathered and were praying so Peter knocked at the outer entrance and the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door 
So here's a situation. Um, you have um, a really wealthy individual. This is Mary, all right? She has a house big enough for many people. She has a servant girl. Um, uh, if you look in an ancient maps of Jerusalem, there's an upper kind of neighborhood in Jerusalem where a lot of the people with money lived. And so Mary was there. Um, this wasn't Jesus's Mary. This is Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. And she had means and she housed this early church. Just a little side note, if the Lord has blessed you with means, look at people like Mary who were so generous as to open up their home for a church to meet in and probably funded a lot of ministry out of this with servants and et cetera. Be like Mary, if the Lord has given you means, be generous. There's so many generous people like that in the Bible. That's a little side mark. And so um, Peter walks up to here and he knocks at the outer entrance. And it was customary for people that have servants in these larger homes of that day to um, you know, have a servant come and talk through the door before even opening. Records actually show that. So this is all customary according to the times. So in verse 14, when Rhoda came to answer the door, she recognized Peter's voice. He's like, it's me. They probably knew each other, right? He's like, Rhoda, it's me, Peter. Now, mind you, like behind her are people saying, Lord, get Peter out of prison. Lord Jesus, please, please. And so he's like, Rhoda, it's me, it's Peter. And she's stoked. Like she's like, seriously, this is the craziest, amazing. So what does she do? She runs back without opening the door and exclaims, Peter's at the door. All right. So you're Peter and you hear Rhoda run away, like yelling, Peter's outside. And he's like, oh, like I'm so vulnerable out here. Like seriously, he's probably thinking it's harder for me to get into the prayer meeting than it was to get out of jail here. Like what is going on? So Rhoda goes and she's like, stops the prayer meeting. Peter's here. Now they're praying, Lord, release Peter. Peter's here. Verse 15, how do they respond? You're out of your mind. They told her, back to praying, Lord, release Peter out of prison, right? She kept insisting, I'm telling you, he's, ser- he's seriously like, for real, he's outside, like, for real, come on, come on. It's probably a kid, you know? Like, you gotta go, like, just go. And they say, it must be his angel. But she kept insisting, right? And Peter's probably hearing this commotion because of verse 16, it says, Peter kept on knocking. He hears the commotion. He's like, guys, come on, seriously, like, they might get me out here, like, let me in, let me in. So they opened the door and they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Now in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to where what had become of Peter, you think? <laughs> right? But here's the thing, a very human thing. This is going to go back to some of our boxes that are going to be broken right now. They were astonished that their prayers were answered. Like, I want you to consider that for a moment. They saw him and were like, oh, wow, like God actually just answered our prayer. Whoa. What does this tell us? That they didn't quite even have full, the fullness of faith in their prayers. Like, they knew they should pray, but they're like, this ain't going to be happening. But, you know, we got to pray anyway, right? Oh, this ain't going to be happening. And then it happens. And they don't even believe it. Don't even go and open the door. You ever prayed? Is, that, is, this, is this helpful for us, you know, weaklings here in this room that we, you know, we want to pray and we think, well, Lord, if only I just had enough faith to believe. Like, they didn't and he still answered because he's gracious. 
right? I think it's really good that our, we learn how to have an increased faith. We learn to expect and believe that God can do big things. But even in our weak moments, when we're still praying, even out of duty, and our heart's like, I just don't think. God's like, I'm going to surprise you. Because you're faithful, even if your faith is weak. In your faithfulness right now, I'm going to blow your mind. Boom, there's Peter knocking on the door. Right? Their crazy prayer that they didn't even embrace themselves actually was answered. Now, I know it's kind of a comedic story, but I think it's very instructive for us in this time because as we close here, number one, the church was praying a big prayer, even with the struggling faith and the miraculous happened. And I think Luke wrote this story down to encourage us to pray big prayers, to encourage us to pray what seems to be the impossible if it is for the witness of the gospel, if it is for the glory of God, that's another uh, sermon for a different day about um, how, how to, what does it mean to pray in the will of God and how do you learn the will of God through prayer? Different sermon, that's one I want to preach today, but again, I want to not have you here till two o'clock. Um, so what about a praying church? What about us? What does it mean for us to pray big prayers? Right? So I'm going to address like this church here. And if, if you're visiting with us, I want you to, to hopefully catch a, a glimpse of, of what I think God intends the church to be where they are found. The kind of prayers that God wants churches to pray where they may be found. So here we are as a church in the city limits of Wilmington. We've been here for 150 years, right? So here we are, 2023, we're in Wilmington. What do big prayers look like? Being in a city that is broken as we know, broken families, the extremities of poverty, fatherless families, drug addiction, mass racial inequality when it comes to socioeconomics, a, a city that was labeled too long ago, Murder Town, USA. Can we commit to ourselves, commit ourselves to pray crazy things like, Lord, could you reduce the murder rate in Wilmington? Could you give dreams and visions to fathers wrapped up in gang violence and addiction to show yourself to them and Lord save them, restore them to their families, bring them to the door of a church to be seeking after the person that they just dreamed about even they weren't even seeking you? And Lord, could you bring to a close the epidemic of fatherless families in the city of Wilmington and reduce the crime to see a city of flourishing and in the meantime, Lord, bring a spiritual awakening that people who don't know you weren't even seeking after you can find you and their hearts can turn to you and churches will be flooded with people who are just looking for hope and found it in Jesus Christ in his life and his death and resurrection and a spiritual awakening happens because we prayed for it. Amen. It could. It could. Do you believe it? Are you willing to pray such crazy prayers? I'm going to show you with a, uh, a, brief, stamp, uh, a brief story of, of this actually happening to give us some encouragement. And we'll do some praying ourselves. The city is Cali in the nation of Colombia. It's 1991, the early 90s. Time magazine calls Colombia the most violent nation in the world. It's controlled by a drug cartel exporting to other nations 500 million a month worth of cocaine. In the 90s, that's a lot of money in the 90s. 
the nation's paralyzed in fear. On average, of 15 murders a day takes place in the streets just by looking at a cartel member wrong. People, you can read these stories, people saying, I've seen 5, 10, 15 people murdered. It's just life in Cali, Colombia. There were pastors in the city, and they're like, what do we do? The government's not doing anything. Nobody knows what to do. We're going to pray. We're going to pray because we don't know what to do. There's only about 50,000 Christians or so in the city of Cali. Of Cali. Churches were divided. They weren't necessarily united. So pastors began calling each other, um, saying, let's get together. Can we do something? Can we get together and start praying? And so they did. Um, throughout the years, it led into 1995, plans were made for a prayer vigil. So that they persevered for years. In 1995, plans were made for a prayer vigil to take place in a civic auditorium in the city. Prayer for God to begin overthrowing the cartel and bring peace to their city. This is a big prayer. Expecting a few thousand to show up, 25,000 show up. It shows the desperation of this city. 25,000 show up for prayer. What happens in 48 hours? Front page of the newspaper. No homicides in 24 hours. First time and nobody knows how long. And they were like, hmm, that's interesting. Is that a little, you know, little glimpse of our prayers being answered? In four months, 900 police-linked uh, cartel were arrested and thrown in jail. In four months, suddenly the streets started being cleaned of corruption. Church is like, wow, there's things happening. This stuff wasn't happening before. So what do they do? They kept praying. The church has secured a local stalker stadium, much larger than the auditorium, for mass prayer events to take place every three months to continue to pray to God for the rescue of their city from the cartel. The stadium was packed on the first night. The mayor of the city himself showed up. Then suddenly, the stadium loses power. Prayer continued. One and a half hours later, power was was restored. Nobody was freaked out. Nobody was scared. They just kept persevering in prayer. The mayor himself saw the order and just the persistence in prayer at the lights going out, and he stood up in the microphone, and he says, Cali belongs to Jesus Christ. That night, four to 5,000 people meet Jesus for the first time. There are stories of miracles taking place that cause people to come to him that very night. By the end of 1995, uh, revival started breaking out in that city. Awakening started breaking out. All seven of the highest cartel leaders were arrested. And the city started looking to the church saying, guys, I don't know what you're doing, but like, can we work together here to, res- to restore our city? Because it's happening. Eventually, one of the pastors was killed. One of the pastor leaders kind of leading this was killed by the cartel. And that all that did was increase the hunger for evangelism, increase the fervor for prayer. And revival continued to break out, not just in that city. It broke out to neighboring communities and even neighboring nations. There's so much of the story I could tell. But like that little house church praying for Peter's release, like these Christians praying for the deliverance of their city from from the power of the drug lords, my question is, what are we praying for? Because my guess is it's too small. My guess is it's too small. I feel like an angel is kind of kicking us like he kicked Peter, like, get up, wake up. It's time. It's time to understand the possibilities of a praying church. 
The light of our church could indeed remain dim if we do not commit ourselves to ambition in our prayers. Ambition in our prayers for the glory of God to be shown all around Wilmington for healing and for restoration. And so I want to call um, the, um, the worship team up uh, as we enter our prayer time.